0: Welcome to the Highland Wonders podcast, where we share stories and knowledge from experts about the charismatic species and diverse ecosystems of the Okanagan Highlands of North Central Washington. My name is Jen Weddle, and I am one of the co-directors of Okanagan Highlands Alliance, a nonprofit conservation organization dedicated to protecting the beautiful Okanagan Highlands. This episode features Islands in the Ice, Nun attacks. Nun attack is more than a really hard spelling word, although it is a really hard spelling word. In 2015 it was one of the final words in the national Spelling bee. There are a few different ways you might imagine spelling it, and different spellings bring to mind different meanings, but we'll let you think about that on your own. This podcast is all about n u n, a, t a k s nun attacks islands in the ice rugged rocky peaks jutting from glacial ice exposed to the sun the wind snow and rain there's not much protection on a nun attack just cracks and rocks but during ice ages that is all that a few hardy plants and small animals need to survive and it's possible that some of the alpine species that are found today atop the tallest peaks in the Okanagan are the same species that found safe harbor during the last ice age on these islands in the ice. This presentation is brought to us by George Thornton, local educator and naturalist, civic leader, and also happens to be the president of OHA's board of directors. In the next 45 minutes, George will connect so many ideas and concepts from climate to geology, to botany, to ecosystem dynamics. Hopefully your head won't spin. He has spent a lot of time puzzling out the what's and the whys and the hows of the species and interactions he has observed through his personal explorations in the area and his formal work conducting plant surveys with the US Forest Service. And without further ado, here is George to tell you the whole story. Enjoy.
1: Welcome. This is uh, George Thornton. I'm from the Oroville area. The topic I want to cover today is called Islands in the Ice. And I want to take you back many years. We're talking prior to the end of the last ice age, which around in our area is about at least 15,000 years ago. We know that the various peaks stood out because they have the rather sharp and pointy outline. But if they were completely glaciated, we would have an entirely different shape and look. Additionally, there's a possibility, not absolute, and we have limited evidence that certain plant communities survived for the thousands and thousands of years on these peaks out above the ice. The mountains on which are now forested, they're rounded. They don't have jagginess to them. They would have been covered by the ice, which acted like sandpaper, a rasp, a grater, and smooth them out. A large part of the, mountain, the mid-range mountains were ones that have been burned off in recent fires, which, if you look back over the tens of thousands of years, is, is a fairly common event when you think of common separated by 100 to 200 years at a time. It's just that in our lifetime, we've not experienced this. It can be argued, and maybe we don't really have enough evidence that fires have become more frequent. And that's, that's a dilemma that we'll, that we'll wrestle with over the, over the next few decades. In the extent of the last ice age, the Okanagan lobe dammed the Columbia, and you have uh, the Puget Sound itself filled with ice. The Columbia would then flow much farther out, depositing the sediments from the interior, coming back to the Okanagan, in whereas now idaho there was a small lobe in it which dammed the water draining out of the southern edge of the ice flow of the ice in the glaciers that backed up an immense lake called lake missoula periodically the the depth of the lake would get so deep and the pressure of the water would break through that lobe what we call the the brett's floods and you have the effect the, on, the, on the basin and down through the Columbia, and it even backed up into the Willamette Valley, depositing a great deal of sediment, which makes it such a great agricultural area today. Equally, the Yakima Valley, you could see water backed up into it. For our purposes today, though, we're underneath that Okanagan lobe. What evidence we have seems to think at Tenasket, you probably had somewhere around 5,000 feet of ice above us, a mile. So if, if the valley's is about 1,000 feet high today, you add at least 5,000 feet to that. So then you're talking an altitude of around 6,000 feet. In the Cascades, it would have been higher yet. So we would be talking maybe 7,000 feet altitude would be the top of the glaciers. And the few peaks above that would have been these sharp-pointed peaks and ridges. The name that's applied to these isolated peaks, these isolated bits of rock, are Nunataks, N-U-N-A-T-A-K-S. It's an Inuit word, because to the far north, these are still common features today, and so we use the Inuit word and roughly it translates to isolated rock above ice. I want to bring up and suggest the possibility that within these glacial areas, there's valleys, there's mountain peaks that are isolated, completely surrounded by ice, which would have been, in our immediate area, Chipaca Mountain, Windy Peak, and Tiffany. Now, there's probably more, but those are the ones closest by. And we'll get into how to pick them out and identify them. First, some background. When we refer to these areas which were res- surrounded by ice, surrounded by glaciers, they're called glacial refugia. If they're up in the mountains, we call them alpine glacial refugia. They're called refugia because these were areas where the, there was the strong potential for plants and animals to survive and Long periods of time in these, possibly becoming isolated and over a great span of time to then develop characteristics and features that made them different from the species that they came from. Now, we're talking if we talk glacial refugia in general, they could have been in some feature out in a flatter terrain where, for, for whatever reason, the glacier went around it or in the case of the valleys flowing north from the, from the lakes in the scab land, those valleys could have been refugia. And the same thing is going to apply. They're going to have unique physical features as well as a combination of plant life that makes you wonder about the diversity. Why are things where they're at? So we look for two things. Unique terrain, gla- glacier features, erratics, rains, eskers um, we're not going to spend a lot of time with those because what what you find is the peaks do not have these features and they don't, don't look like they've been ground and smoothed or or, or, or rounded they're very peaky and very very craggy in the regular refuge on, on flatter land then you then you're going to have other features to look for primarily the unusual plant species and having spent Twenty years with the Forest Service and, and a lot of time on my own. These are the things that I my big background is in an unusual plant species in our area. And the, these peaks, which have a possibility to be the nentax, to be the re- remnants that stuck above the glaciers, I'll repeat them: Chapaca, which really is three peaks. It's it's Chapaca itself. It's Hurley Peak and it's Joe Mills in that complex. Then you have Windy Peak far to the west. And then south of Windy, you have Tiffany. Tiffany's the tallest at about 8,400 feet. Windy's about 82. Chepacca is barely under 8,000 feet. Islands in the ice, just popping up out of this great field of ice. Broken rock terrain, that chunky. Rock that's just lying on the surface, that is characteristic of a attack. So now we have two things: the pointed, jaggy outline, and then you have this rugged, fractured rock terrain. Our, our physical signs. That's a good possibility. Is these these weren't glaciated. The fractured rock. Yeah, we have we have uh, things like that in non-glacial areas, but this rubble is. Uh, it's blocky you'd think if it was covered by ice at all it would have been carried away whereas a lot of our uh when we see rocks lying around at lower altitudes uh, they're talus slopes there they don't have that the same feature just lying on a on the surface just a rocky rubble we'll get into more of that later all right the ice is melted The time it took for the ice to melt is very hard for us to know. But, you know, you set an ice cube out in rather cold days, and you recognize it takes quite a while. And here we're talking five, six, maybe 7,000 feet of ice over the whole interior of this northern fourth of of Washington, and then farther north into British Columbia. It's going to be cold. It's going to be windy. You're going to have snow and ice and and some years are colder and some years are warmer. That's no different than than today. The sun's going to be the same. It's just as hot. It's just as bright. It has the same day length as we have today. But it's a slow warming and it's going to come and go. One thing to keep in mind is where does all the water go? All the snow and ice, it's melting. As your eye gets trained, You can see some, uh, what the consequence of the great deal of water. One of them is the raise in the ocean levels. We're talking three, 400 feet rise since the melting of the glaciers. Focusing on the plants. It's a pretty slow process for the return of what ecological and plant, the plant community, animal community that we see today. A lot of them is, is going to be introduced naturally. The non-glacial land was less than a hundred miles south of us. So the animals that were there, the plants that were there could reintroduce in our area fairly quickly. But you're talking Arctic tundra. It's really different community of plants. And if there were remnant plants on from the tops of the peak, they would have spread downward from those peaks and into areas which resembled those areas that they survived in then as the climate warms yet again they would have struggled and retreated to the higher terrain again so there's this ebb and flow up and down the mountains as as the climate evolved over the years There's strong evidence, and and that strong evidence is you find lakes and ponds that have been around a very long time, and you do corings, and then people who know what they're doing look in the mud layers and they can see the pollen grains. And those pollen grains, they're unique to every particular species of plant. And so by looking at the variety of pollen grains, you you can find out what the plant communities were like at particular layers of sediment in the bottom of these older ponds, the best guess is five to six thousand years ago. <clears throat> it was much. It was at least as warm as we're experiencing today, and maybe warmer. And what stayed that way for a, quite a long time. This environment changes. The thing that is different today is the speed of change. Okay, so at least ten thousand years you start getting a more mature landscape, isolated populations are threatened by changing climate today in our area. The top of the mountain is rather ragged and craggy. That would have been above the glacial during the, the last glaciation. Below that, it's a much more rounded, much more level look to it. And you'll see That the rocks themselves look somewhat smooth. They don't have that cragginess to them. You'll see vegetation, but going upwards, it you know it stops, and that's as much by the conditions as it is there's just not suitable soil up in those more rugged, craggy areas. But as we get in closer, you're going to begin to find there are plants, there are animals up in those locations. Alpine larch. They're, they're a relative to the larch that we see at our altitude here in you know, around Lost Lake, the Highlands. It's a smaller tree. There's some fine characteristics in the twigs, and in general, the needle shape is a little different, but it's a larch. It loses its needles in the fall, and it, it has no commercial value, but it's very adapted to these conditions. The branches are short. They're flexible, they won't snap off in cold weather. and they can they can be a very small tree and be at hundreds and hundreds of years of age. The pines primarily are what's called white bark pine, and we'll get into more of that later. Okay, Ome Mountain was glaciated at least for for some length of time. The top of it and the outline is pretty rounded. At the top of it, Shepaca, we're looking down towards Palmer Lake, the Simalkameen River coming down from Canada. It's very flat. That would have been gouged out and be a pretty deep valley. But over the thousands of years, not decades, since the last glaciation, it's been completely filled in by, by sediment and what we call glacial till. That's the stuff that at the, right at the base of the glacier it gets dumped by the glacier. But most of this is going to be sediment that's come down from north. In a way, you know, you could call it borrowed land. It's on Lent from Canada. And over the long years, it's going to continue moving south. You know, this is mature, meaning it, it's, you know, it's kind of settled into a pattern you can depend on. It's not going to have any rapid change. You have those U-shaped lakes. Those are what we call oxbow lakes. As the river used to be very, very kind of sinuous, S-shaped, and then those s bends would be cut off and just become separated lakes that's a characteristic of a flat mature landscape palmer lake is rather unusual because water flows into it through the same inlet outlet and it goes out during the drier spells so it, it kind of acts like a reservoir for the simelgamean river it's very unusual not that rare but just unusual okay top of mount Chapaca you've got a few little alpine larch. You have some very short heather-like plants. Certain grasses are there, but except for these trees, everything is really short. Okay, on the very top of Hurley Peak, there are some very, very unique plants. One species grows nowhere else in the whole state of Washington, and it's Actually, its closest relatives are hundreds of miles north on other peaks. So, you know, these, and, it, and there, it's a kind of plant that doesn't move, you know, doesn't move around. It's not wind blowing. It uh, doesn't move around real well uh, by other means. You know, it, it's so unusual. It gives this piece of evidence that perhaps these peaks here, we have leftover plants all, from the last glaciation on these peaks chipaka hurley and joe mills these three peaks together are what we call chipaka and it's set us by, aside by our state as what's called a natural area preserve because it, it's a, it's a real special area it's isolated from the rest of the cascades and has a unique collection of plants found nowhere else in this bigger combination nowhere else in the state and uh, you know it's it's an it's just a neat place. We're talking a, a, at least 13 species of rather rare plants between these three peaks. I want to slip into another discussion now that's a feature of, gla- of glacial activity. The movement of the glacier is like a really slow river, and it's, as it mo- moves along on the north side or the uphill side, the glacier rides up, and it, and it just makes it a very smooth slope it grinds it and little chunks of rock embedded in the bottom of the glacier get moved along just acting like gouges uh, smoothing the surface but on the south side it it tends to have a, a much steeper because chunks of rock the glacier frees to it the rocks are fractured by the by the pushing of the glacier Moisture gets in there, it freezes, it cracks them apart, so you get a very abrupt edge on that south side. That's a good piece of evidence that an area has been fully glaciated. That action is called plucking. It's like plucking feathers, except in this case, it's plucking rocks from the, from the, down, from, from the downstream, so to speak, flow of a glacier. Mount Hull, just south of Oroville, a ex- lowland example. You have the south face virtually a cliff. This is much more gentle slope coming uh, on the north side going towards the south. And and so, this is really good evidence. You see a little bit of talus slope in the middle, but you don't see piles of and great and and a lot of uh, this fractured rock. There's little places, of course. Okay, Bonaparte, but much more gentle slopes slightly steeper to the, the south side of the mountain and where plucking occurred it make, made it steeper than on the side where the glaciers rode up and over the top of the mountain top of bone apart, rock lying around it's not a pile of rubble there many of them are smooth and there's a fair amount of uh, sand and gravel around which is helping the plants grow a little bit so, this is again for, for at least some time the glacier went up and over there. All right, Joe Mills Mountain. When it was up there, there this last summer, we were surveying uh, to locate some of these rare plants. I and a volunteer trees you see, white bark pine, you have spruce. There's, uh, I believe, there's even some, some alpine fir, various heather like plants and grasses. So you don't have a lot of shrub in between small trees and you got short trees. Okay. Let's look more deeply into what the plants might be telling us first, pretty common plants, large. They drop their needles that keeps them from needing to protect their needles and leaves from the cold. They have relatively short branches and they're pretty flexible so that when we get a snow load, they're not going to, they're not going to be broken down too much beyond that there are some pretty low-lying plants those are willow trees yeah willow trees what are we talking an inch at the most yeah there's actually three species of willow tree more or less like that on the top of the, the, the mountains there are some little tiny catkins less than a quarter inch this is a willow tree under alpine conditions plants in general they tend to be short and that's to accommodate frost ultraviolet rays wind they're often hairy again ultraviolet and cold they're adapted to a heavy snow load they're adapted to a short season if the plant needs pollinators It's going to be bumblebees more more likely than not. There are other bees around, and there's flies and little beetles, butterflies. But it doesn't have the same number and kinds of of pollinators as as you're going to find in a much more lonely land. Okay, if you want to have any questions, you can uh, send them in to my email, which will be at the end, and I'll be glad to tell you. We don't know absolutely for sure on any of this. A lot of this is maybe possible, looks like it, and sort of analysis, but it's a very interesting puzzle that we're working on. This is a big story I want to share with you. The Clark's Nutcracker, they got a beak like a chisel. You don't want to mess with them. I never have, I don't plan on it. The tree is a white bark pine. The cone, unlike the, the, the pine cones, we have around here, as they mature, they open up. The seeds are caught by the wind and they're blowing around so that they can you know start another pine tree somewhere else. Well, this white bark pine, those do not open up at all. They're just coated with resin. And so the only way the seeds can get out is this Clark's nutcracker. They really flock to these higher altitudes. When the cones start ripening, because the seed in them, pine nut, is just you know it's bigger than a pea, and they're just filled with nutrients. The Clark's nutcrackers be up be up in the alpine for a month or two before they start coming back down to lower altitudes. Well, there's just too much for them to eat at any one time, and the pine cone harvest, the nut harvest, some some peaks, some mountaintops have a lot, and then the next year they don't. So the So there's a big movement around. The birds check all of them out, and then they'll settle into an area where there's a lot of cones, and they they wedge and chisel those seeds out, and they'll get several in their mouth, and they fly off, and they dig a hole in the ground, and they bury the seeds. Well, sometimes they get back, and sometimes they don't. And there there you have a new tree planted. Those are called a cache, a seed cache. Well, there's a lot of other animals know all about this. And when it, it is a primary food for grizzly bears. It's a primary food for ground squirrels, rabbits, various other rodents, other birds. But it's the Clark's Nutcracker doing all the work and caching the seeds, and then other animals get pretty dependent upon it. The trees depended on it because if it, if it weren't for the movement of The seeds around by the Clark's nutcracker, you would have just this really heavily packed uh, location of of little trees. They'd be crowding each other out and fighting each other, and not the scattered population of white bark pine. What we call a symbiotic relationship—that means both of them, the Clark's nutcracker and other animals, and the white bark pine—are dependent of each other. Unfortunately, when People came from Europe to North America and more specifically came into our area. They carried with them a disease called blister rust. And the trees in Europe, you know, in a sense, you could say they grew up with this blister rust. They have resistance to it, they have, the, the plant is not going to be threatened by it at all. Well, our pine. Not not all pines, but we call five-needle pines. If you look closely at the at a pine, they'll have a little cluster of needles. And if you count the number of needles in it, it tells you which major group of pines it belongs into. So around here, we have two-needle pines, and that's lodgepole is primarily our two-needle pine. We have our ponderosa pine. That's got three needles. And your whitebark pine's got five needles. All five needle pines are susceptible to blister rust to the point of driving them extinct in our area. This is a growing threat. Think about what we just talked about. You got a group of animals, birds, that are extremely dependent upon the seeds. You got a tree that needs the birds to spread the seeds around. And now you got a disease wiping out the white bark pine. Yeah. The Western white pine is a five-needle pine also. It's getting attacked by the same blister rust. We have we don't really have a way of doing much about this. It's just one of those unfortunate things that happen. There's a long history of people moving all over the world. We carry things with us, diseases that affect us. And we have animals we brought around that end up being trouble. But in this case, it's a fungus disease. But just like so many things, there is probably, and they're looking very hard for resistant white bark pine. And then finding them, getting the seeds from them, and replanting a blister rust resistant variety of white bark pine. It's a work in progress. We'll see how well this works out. Let's move on. Okay, let's look at some unique plants to the alpine. One called snowy sankfoil or pointentia, beautiful little yellow flower. You know, kind of like a buttercup, but it's 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 a different different flower than that. At the base of each petal is just a cute little orange dot. So you got the yellow and the orange. This plant, it sprawls out a little bit on what we call stolons, uh, but the unique feature of it, it's very hairy. And on the underneath of some of, of every leaf, it is absolutely snow white. And that's the easiest characteristic to identify this plant. You're up on the top of some mountainous, rocky place. Uh, you know, when there are very few trees around. In fact, you have this rock rubble all, all around you. It's really short. You flip over leaf, and it has this just blinding white, snowy, sank foil. It's on a few of our highest peaks. I've seen it over on, let's see, Tiffany. I haven't been to the top of Windy yet, but it's probably there. And it's on Chapaca, and it's on Hurley Peak. The plant that I've been doing the most research on, this kind of aqua blue or aquamarine colored flower, what we call the Glaucus gentian. Glaucus is some fancy word in plant world that we use to say it's blue colored or blue tinted. I think this is more of an aquamarine or a turquoise color. You you can call it what you want. It's about two to four inches tall. I spent a lot of time looking for it this past summer. We found 176 plants. You could guess we missed some. Maybe, Maybe there's 200 up there, but we looked really, really hard for it. Ten years ago, approximately, I was up there and found 900 plants. I have a strong suspicion this plant, they go into dormant They're hard to see. Then the the good years, they come back. I don't know. The Glaucus gentian, it's a perennial. Fleshy little leaves at the base. They're in fours and it has to grow up a little before it's going to flower. So you'll find little clusters of fleshy green leaves in these sets of four. But boy, I tell you, you just, you have to spend some time and get used to seeing them. They don't necessarily jump out at you. Let's take a look at some others, some common ones. You have the paintbrush, you got lupins, you have uh, daisies, you have, uh, in the, you have a kind of goldenrod. Pretty typical alpine meadow. Lupin are wonderful. Generally, all of our lowland lupins, you don't think of them as having a strong scent. You get up in these alpine meadows, when, when you have a dominant lupin bloom, it perfumes the entire air. It's just exotic and wonderful. So lupin's a really big plant in the alpine. Chepaka mountain itself is thought to be one of the most beautiful displays of alpine flowers you know you hike up there yeah let's see late june into early july it is spectacular it's it's well worth the hike it's a little bit vertical but you know you take your time it's it's not bad you know it's easy to get there you just walk up you're not going to get too lost Okay, a couple more common ones. Back to the willows. There's one with an oval leaf, and there's one that has a very rounded leaf. So, yeah, oval, rounded. I know. I, I know. It's a, it's a little thing, but mostly it's going to be the catkin is different. And you have to look really close with a little hand magnifying glass in order to check that out. And then there's, uh, there's going to be a gap between the, lar- the, the lowland larch, the western larch. And it can be a couple hundred feet, can be a thousand feet, depends on the location, where there's no larch at all. And that's because the alpine larch lives in the alpine. And the western larch can only grow up to a certain altitude because then the winters get too harsh. And so it's not an absolute, but there's a gap between them on most cases. And then you've got the little green uh, heather-like plant. You've got some little tiny huckleberry plants Okay, we talked about alpine refugia. There is a place in Wisconsin where for some reason that nobody can has a great explanation, glaciers came down from Canada and made a big loop around, made an isolated area, which never was glaciated. And it has this big natural prairie in it. And in some places it's not cultivated. In some places it is. And it's a now many parts of it have been turned into a, a big parkland by the states there. And it has in it a collection of rare plants that survived through the last glacial period. It is so different from our alpine. It's uh, not really comparable. But if you ever get a chance, I go to that Wisconsin, Minnesota area and look it up. Okay. What, what about alternative explanations? Back at the beginning, I talked about, the natural spreading of plants that could be the what happened with all these rare plants is that they didn't need to survive on the tops of these peaks all the area around them would have been tundra these are naturally tundra plants and then they could have migrated back to these as the climate changed other in the highlands there's other stories there is a, a kind of iris that grows in the highlands Molson, Chisaw, as far south as Mount Ann, And it's an an endemic. An endemic means it grows in an area and nowhere else in the world. And this particular iris isn't like the big ones you have in your garden. It doesn't have uh, what you call the banner. It's a big rounded part of the top. It just has the lower petals sticking out. And it's got six of them. It, the genus name is is asterakeum and and common name is blue-eyed grass and they're very short under under maybe a foot or less you got to look real close it looks like grass hence the name but but that it has these flowers maybe as big as a quarter we have two species in our area one of them is where the lower sheath that covers the flower as it's developing is just the barely longer than the flower head itself and and then then you have the little blue flowers poke out from that and they're usually above that part our other species the one that's endemic to our area and nowhere else in the world that lower bract b-r-a-c-t sticks way out and is maybe a couple inches long and really thin and dagger-like and in the flowers don't get that tall, and they're kind of just clustered around this long, dagger-like lower bract on the flower. Okay, years ago, they did a genetic study. They looked at, well, actually, uh, they looked at the chemical enzymes and and the genetics of the plant. And over time, there's pretty good evidence that the more plants are separated and, and isolated, they start getting a different mixture of genetics and, and chemicals in the plant, and it's a pretty predictable rate, by no means absolute, but pretty predictable. You can, you can make a good estimate about how long a plant has been separated from others like itself, where ours, this Cicerinchium, this blue-eyed grass with the long, with the long daggered lower bract, has been alive and in existence in our area since somewhere in the middle of the last big glaciation? Well, that means it had to come somewhere, but everywhere in its habitat today was completely covered by ice. How did it get here? And it's not the only plant that kind of raises that same question. So there's that possibility. The plants are saying something. Yeah, sure, they may have been brought in by by natural means, you know, via animal or via the wind came, seeds don't get spread by wind and they're very and they don't they don't spread very far period okay raises a question They're just the, the seeds are like little little dots not much else so there is some evidence there was other refugia area you know areas that weren't glaciated at the at the edge of the um uh, of, of the ice at that time who knows maybe there were survivors in that speculation just thoughts. Climate change impacts. Hey, if you think climate's changed now, think back to 5,000 feet of ice and compare that today. Yeah, we get climate change. They're no kidding. The only question is how fast and in what direction. Well, right now, climate change is happening pretty darn fast compared to historical times. The impact of that is, is plants and animals are used to change. They're adaptable. The difference is you're talking about change over hundreds of years. And so plants move around by natural means to find more advantageous places. On our mountain peaks, one of the natural things to do would be move up higher where it's cooler and you, and, and you can survive the heat and the drought. Well, after a while, you run out of mountaintop. And that's what we're faced today with these nanotacks in our area, these rare complexes of plants. They don't have anywhere to go. They're running out of territory. In the greater world, given all the other things, is it a big deal? Maybe not. But diversity in general, in all ways, gives you a better chance of survival, because you never know what are positive features in the future. Human impacts—roads, parks, inordinate number of hikers grazing fires you can go on and on human impacts as our population grows as we're more capable of getting places with machinery with where we normally would be a long hike in and that limited who who is there under what circumstances human impacts getting to be a bigger and bigger thing fire it is a constant companion with our ecosystem in eastern washington we just happen to be seeing a lot of big ones now, but we have that additional problem of the of the increasing drought and more people and and fires in my lifetime have gotten more frequent and very much larger. And if you go to the top of Mount Chapaka, I can find chunks of charred wood on the very top. And that's at least the best History I can find shows that all of that area was burned severely shortly after 1900. Just now, we're starting to see a few alpine larches, a few white bark pine, starting to grow at similar altitudes again. You're talking over a hundred years for trees to come back to the tops of the mountain. So, as fires get more and more frequent, if they do, then there's not gonna be that opportunity for the re- reclaiming of these various parts of the, ma- of the landscape by these slow recolonizations by the natural world. That's gonna have an impact. Some species will not survive. I'm glad to field your questions. Love to hear from you. Just, and I can, I'll give you whatever response I can.
0: Hey, I have one more question for you. Sure kind of related to human impacts and people exploring our area. Yes. Do you have recommendations of what people can do when they're exploring these mountaintops Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. encountering rare plants, both in terms of like being careful around them Mm -hmm. to try to minimize their impacts? And also, do you know of any citizen science Opportunities where people can take pictures or or send in pictures that they have. So those are my two separate questions.
1: Okay. Let's deal with the first one. How can you cause as an individual the least impact? There is the whole thing of no trace that you don't your your practices, you don't leave marks. You don't hack at a tree. You don't dig holes. If you're in muddy areas, stay away from it because your imprint is will, will last. Dozens of years, particularly wet spots that way. Stay on the main trails as much as possible. If you see a pretty flower, take a picture. Don't take the flower. You know, and, and okay, go up and enjoy the time. Think about it. And if the opportunity comes up, be willing to make a comment about how important it is to, to keep these places largely intact. They're already struggling. We don't want to add more impact than necessary. So that's participation and keeping these places as untrammeled as possible. And then no trace. We talk about no trace camping. Well, no trace activities. The second question you bring up is, are there organizations? There's the Washington Trails Association. Well, it's dedicated to trails, but it's talking about similar areas. You, you have the... Um, rare care out of the university of washington and that's the group i work for more than anybody else where they'll train you in looking for and inventorying and, and doing the mapping of rare plants in the state of washington they don't they're not necessarily alpine they can be all kinds of places we have several in the, in the highlands we have a we have a yellow lady slipper that's very very rare and scattered around we have a couple of other orchids that are really 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 rare in in the Okanagan Highlands. And you get that, it's just a neat feeling to know that you're helping as well as, you know, this is pretty dang special. And you can get a picture and you can keep that picture and you're not doing any harm at all. There's a a type of orchid that is found nowhere else in the state of Washington except in the Cape LaBelle area. And there's only maybe a total of 40 plants discovered totally in the state of Washington. And they're all in our area. We don't know why they're just there in another area there's a type of huckleberry and it's not found again nowhere else in the state of washington it's pretty common back east okay why is it here we don't know but it is here and so keeping that there that little bit of genetic diversity can make a big difference those are two examples that are easy for me to bring up that many rare plants are incredibly obscure they're difficult to see uh, very few of them are big and showy and that so the, a lot of them are maybe and i'm underlined maybe rare because we they're hard to find not because there's a, a very limited number of them most of them though are restricted to very special small habitats unusual places common rule unusual plants are found in unusual places not always but it's a good good rule of thumb so if you get, you're in an area which is man i haven't seen this before this is really different you might step a little more carefully you don't know what's there
0: sounds like good advice
1: yep yeah. thank you
0: This podcast is produced by Okanagan Highlands Alliance. OHA is located in Tenasket, a town in the heart of the Okanagan Valley of North Central Washington. We are inspired by the beauty and diversity of the landscape that surrounds us, from the aspen and conifer forests, to the Highland Lakes, to the tumbling creeks that descend to the wide, glacier-carved Okanagan River Valley. We engage in environmental advocacy, habitat restoration, and educational activities in our efforts to protect local ecosystems for future generations. To learn more about OHA or to become a member, please visit our website, okanaganhighlands.org. Thanks to George Thornton for providing this presentation. And to Humanities Washington for supporting season two of the Highland Wonders podcast. The theme song was written and performed by Tyler Graves and Andy Kingham.